Welcome to the Bow Church Podcast. In this episode, Tim May talks about the parable of the prodigal son and what God is saying to us as a church through this story. Speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, uh, next week we're going to begin a series of sermons for the summer called For the Life of the World, about in this time of beginning, hopefully, to think beyond COVID, how is the church to show up in the world? I'll start next week by introducing this series, and then each week over the summer we'll take a theme, beauty, justice, the environment, addiction and recovery, and we'll look at how the life of God shows up in the life of the world through the church. But today, uh, we're looking at this parable, the parable of parables, you could say, almost the sort of top of the charts of Jesus' stories, reverberating through the centuries, through the years, through art, through culture, through Rembrandt's canvases. This is one of the greats, isn't it, this story? And I think it has something specific to say to us. Uh, I'll mention more later, but we're beginning to just consider new services to do new things in the parish, in new places, gardening at St. Leonard's and, and thinking about new services in the west end of the parish. And so tonight at 5 p.m., uh, just a simple time gathering to pray about new services in the parish. And as we do new things, I think this parable has something specific to say to us. So the story begins, of course, with this incredible moment. that the, In the, the hearers of the parable lived in a communal society and in a shame culture where things weren't so easily individualized. So when the son says to the father, give me my inheritance, he's effectively saying, I wish you were dead. I care more about your things than you. Our relationship is just a a means to an end. I just want the cash. And the audience, I, I know stories like this. The audience are like, okay, this is one of my favorites. It's about a naughty son, and he's going to get a punch in the nose. Just, Eddie, you can, just wait. This is great. I love this. He has been awful, and just wait. He's going get, to get what's coming to him. I love revenge stories, because that's awful. In that society, to imagine that you want your father dead, to divorce yourself from a relationship, so you, you just want cash, that was awful. So they, they know how the story is going to work. But they expect the father to probably slap him straight away or at least kick him out of the village. But the father does the unthinkable and the story gets off to a strange start right from the beginning. The father does what the younger son requests. It says he divided his property. The word for property is the word bios. It means his existence. Because in that culture, your land was your standing in the community. He divided himself. What he did would have changed his stand in the community and the older son's stand in the community forever because to get the cash, you had to sell the land. To lose your land was to lose your stand in the community. The hearers had never heard anything like this before. The fact the father did it, they're instantly upset. Like this, this isn't quite what we bargained for for this story. The father endures the agony of rejected love rather than punishing the behavior of the son. He's enduring rejected love rather than responding in righteous judgment. And so the son goes off to a far-off land 
sex, drugs, and the first century equivalent of rock and roll, probably involving harps or something. I don't, I don't really know. And he gets what he wanted. Until he hits rock bottom, money gone, famine in the land. The younger son is in a pigsty in the gutter of his own life. The situation of his own making. He sits down to eat the, the swill of the pigs. And it says he came to his senses. The gravity of his situation brought the truest reality to him. That he had really messed up. And he realizes and remembers that even the servants, even the hired hands on his father's estate get better than this. What has he done? And just to pause for a sec. This moment, I think, points to a universal dynamic in all of us. It's the experience of homesickness. As a, at a kind of cosmic, universal level, it's what drives great art and music, that sense of longing and desire, the restlessness of the human soul to find a resolved note at the end of the symphony. We want to go home, but we don't really always know where home is. The great homesickness of the human heart pinned down into this story. That's the experience of sin. Take sin away from the, the pop cultural ideas, away from too much chocolate and over-sexualized car adverts. This is sin. Martin Luther called sin a life caved in on itself. That's what has happened here. A life caved in on itself, destroyed by its own, the making of, of your own life, made into nothing in the gutter. Self-medicating. Not just the extremes, but all of us, isn't it? We like to think of the dramatic stories, but actually all of us self-medicate, self-satisfy, whatever it is. You know, maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's cocaine, maybe it's just being incredibly critical of everyone you see so you can feel better. Whatever we all do, we all do something that caves ourselves in on ourselves and our life becomes less than it might be. Because sin is a life turned in on itself for the expense of others in the world. The first impulse he has at this point is to self-justify. He thinks, maybe I can go back and just to sort of rehearse what, this, what the story really means, he's saying that maybe I can go back and atone for what I've done wrong. Maybe I can work on the estate and I can pay back. Hired hands didn't live on the estate, they only worked on it. So I'm not going to be able to live with my father. I'm not going to be able to get back to the father's house and sit at my father's table. But maybe if I go back and work long enough and hard enough, I may receive forgiveness. Because if you violated the father, you violated the whole community. It would be the whole community's say-so about whether you would be allowed back. So he thinks he can save himself. That's definitely my impulse whenever I realize I've really messed up. My first impulse, and like many of us, I imagine, what can I do? How can I fix this? How does this get better? It's got to be longer hours of work, later nights, more work. It's got to be an ingenious idea, a clever excuse, blaming someone. What can I do to fix this situation? So he goes back with this pre-rehearsed speech of self-justification. Notice in it, he's, he names his sin. He doesn't even say sorry. 
He's got a defense. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And at this point, the hearers of the story are incandescent with the disgrace of this moment. A patriarch like this would never have run. It was considered to be inadequate. It was considered to be humiliating. You would have to lift up your skirts because of the outfits they wouldn't. And I imagine not everyone had as nice legs as I do. So it was probably quite embarrassing for, for them. But it really was a big deal in the culture at the time. And, and not only that, his level of affection is considered to be that of, of by many commentators say, that of, of a mother. This is unbecoming of a man of such a stature who's already been humiliated, to humiliate himself to this father. What is this father? This is a bad story. When does the son get a punch and why is the father acting like this? The father is running, of course, because of his longing for his son, but not just for affection, not just to shower affection. He's also running to offer protection. There was something at the time called the Kezazar ceremony. And the word literally means to break, to ostracize. And what would happen is when an exile would return to the, the edge of the village, the community would gather around and take a small clay pot and throw it to the ground. And then as it shattered, would say, as this pot is broken, so is our relationship. You're dead to us. You are not welcome here anymore. Father runs to the edge of the village to shower affection, but also to offer protection to get there before anyone else, to get ahead of the village, to get ahead of the vindication that would come to the village when they would kick the son out at the very least, beat him up, or maybe even kill him at the worst. The son offers, a, the father offers protection as well as affection. And then marches the son back through the village saying, if you want to deal with my son, you're going to have to deal with me. You're going to have to deal with the shame of, of fighting me. And then goes beyond all possible imagination at the time and kills the fattened calf. This is a once in a year, perhaps well, like once every few years opportunity for normally a private family feast. And the father makes it clear that he will be willing to shame himself further than the son so that the son may be rehabilitated. This is a passionately social, not just individual occasion. This parable speaks not just to the dynamics of psychology, but to how we organize and how we think of our role as a church. The son expected a bullet, but he got an embrace. Shame is a fundamental condition. Guilt is, is when you think you've done something wrong, but, but shame is when we think we are wrong. That sense of yuckiness about our, ourselves. It says in, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were naked without shame. To be naked with shame is to feel your own vulnerability, your, your own essence, and to feel it's not enough. It's, it, it's embarrassing, it's awkward, it's unclean. And the, the younger son arrives at the edge of the village, the place of rejection, and instead receives acceptance and embrace. The son arrives at the moment where he accepts, expects to, to receive the punishment, thinking maybe my speech will get me through, but more likely than not, I'll be turned away, perhaps spat on, beaten up. And the father gets the ring, puts it on his finger, and says, get the best robe. Whose robe? Well, it would have been his robe. Get my own robe. 
and literally covers his shame, lifts him up, walks him through the village, and throws a party. Now, the older son, you would have come in, wouldn't you, after just yet another day of back-breaking work, the brow-beaten, dust and sweat. All you are thinking about, perhaps, is, is the little dent you made on the field working and all that you're going to have to do tomorrow. Your heart is long since hardened to that awful younger brother that shamed your father and shamed you because the lamb was sold and now you're a laughing stock and you're working by yourself and your inheritance is diminished. His heart is long since hardened and effectively you're all by yourself, walking back. He would have heard the sound of the party probably first, confused, and then smelt roast beef, and that is a good smell, isn't it? But the confusion would have escalated, and as he approached, he couldn't possibly have expected what he experienced. That his idiot younger brother was getting what had not even come close to He hadn't had anything like it. He hadn't even had a goat, it said. And this, this, this one is getting the fattened calf, as the father comes out, the words that he, 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 the younger son says, the first greetings to the father is, look, not father, not dad, but just look. And he won't come into the feast. And the father responds with the same level of invitation and acceptance again and says, my son, my child, I still want you to come, but don't you see, we had to celebrate the one that was lost that is now found. And then the story ends. What a weird story. And what a terrible ending. And where's the punch on the nose? And this is just, the listeners just like, what a strange story. It's not even finished. The point is that both sons are lost. Both sons have had a life caved in on itself at the expense of the outside world. The oldest son loses just as much perspective as the younger son and mistreats the father, forgets even his name, and believes somehow that he has earned his place at the table. You could say that in the, in the kind of moral phrase that we often use, the oldest son is lost in goodness, in morality, in his own sense of justification and righteousness, cannot believe at the father's mismanagement of property and resource. The oldest son is entitled. We obsess over the younger son because it's safe to be here, isn't it? And, to, and that's how the church has named this. This is the parable of the prodigal son. We obsess over the one that is far off, but it's so easy to silently be around the father close, but to miss so much of what it is to actually be invited to the Father's table. And um, just to sort of take it one step further, Jesus told this parable to a particular audience. Just to read it again, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So those that were outside, those that knew they were lost in their badness, were around Jesus but the Pharisees, the religious top dogs at the time, and the teacher of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Now, Jesus told them this parable. So he looks at the, uh, the Pharisees and he tells them, this is the, the last of three parables of losses. He tells them this story to illustrate something. You see, actually, the main weight of the story, the ultimate kind of power behind the story is actually about the older son, not the younger son. The, the mystery and the unresolved note at the end is what will happen to the older son because the audience is the older son. The audience is the Pharisees. The audience is the religious institution at the time. The audience are those that cannot believe what Jesus is doing and how he is doing it. The audience is often people like me, people on the inside of, of the story. Both sons are lost. And both sons are invited. The word prodigal effectively means reckless. The most reckless part of the story is not the shame of, of the younger son or the pride of the older, but the love of the father, the determined gaze of God that seeks, that intervenes, that overwhelms shame with a covering of grace, that interrupts pride and self-justification with kind words of invitation. The prodigal in the story is the father, the unbelievable love of God in Jesus. So as we land this for us, what does this mean? Well, firstly, I don't know if you feel like a younger brother or you feel like an older brother, but the reality is we probably have both in us. I know for sure, for me, writhing around at the same time, these two drives. The younger brother lost. The older brother lost. For me, in church, it's easy to get caught up, actually, and find myself on, on the, st the story of the older brother. Somehow we might think we've, we've earned our place within the, the story of Christianity. It's why I have a personal, and it's just a personal thing, and I'm, I'm bound to offend someone by saying this, I'm sorry if I do, but why I often have an aversion to plaques in churches. It's great to honor the past. It's great to see all that's happened in the past. But sometimes it brings me out in a strange kind of feeling. And I think it's this sort of inbuilt thing in me that actually none of us earn our place here. We're only here because we're invited. None of us own a seat. It's just grace. It's a gift. You may have been come to this church all your life, or it may be the first time you come through these doors. You're welcome. None of us earn our place here. We're all lost without God and without that wonderful intervening gaze of the Father that compels him to run and to cover us with grace. I'm, so some of you knew. <laughs> uh, I've been here a year and a half. I feel like I'm in the door. I need to guard my heart now. I'm not new. New is the person <laughs> at the end of the path looking down at this building thinking, that place won't help me. That will just make me feel even worse. Life's hard enough as it is. Why would I go in there? I spoke to someone recently who came to church and she said, I've been wanting to come for a year, but I didn't want to intrude. The ability to wreck our own lives is in all of us. The ability to cave in is in all of us. The good news, though, is that the Father invites us 
The Father interrupts us. We belong as a church at the edge of the village and in the center of the party. We should be with the Father uh, interrupting the shame story that calls human souls to cave in and to hide. We should be with the Father at the edge of the village, embracing and protecting. I did a walk yesterday. I bumped into, I popped over to St. Leonard's where others were gardening very hard. I, 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 I did one wheelbarrow at Worth which took about 30 seconds, um, uh, which was more than enough for me. But the, the police were there. We just bumped into the police, um, community police um, for this area, and they, they sort of talked me through some of the stuff that's happening in the area, some of the violent crime that's happening right now. And that's where we belong. The edge of the village, outside moral conformity, interrupting shame cycles. That's why it's so good we do the welcome team now at the end of the path, because it's a long path. And if you're unsure whether you belong here, that every step is a mile. And we belong at the center of the party. We're roast beef or roast courgette if you're a vegan, whatever, roast something, celebrating, dancing, pulling people into the center, lifting up others, joyfully celebrating the fact that we're together. We belong at the edge of the village and the center of the party, which is why new services, new guardian projects, new things are all part of the same circulation of grace, of going and finding people where they are, extending hospitality, and welcoming them into the center. We need to be dynamic. We need to be moving at this time more than ever. That's why we're doing new services in different parts of the parish. That's why we're outside. That's why this will never change here, because this is where we want to say you're welcome. Come into the very center of what it means to be part of this church. We belong at the edge of the village, redirecting shame. We belong at the center of the party, inviting people thin. in. Older sons call from their fields of resentment. Younger sons call in from the edge of the field. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in the center of the party. And the good news that we can be friends with God, even though we're not perfect. I'm going to pray for us now. As you sit, just welcome God's presence, his Holy Spirit, to bring to you the particular message, the particular aspects of guidance and life that God would call to you. Holy Spirit, free us from shame and free us from pride. Release our hearts to know we're welcome at the table. And call us to be a people that does the same for others.